0: Let's turn to 1st Timothy. We'll be reading the first eight verses of chapter 2 of 1st Timothy. First of all, so Paul wants us to see the proper priority here. First of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony borne at the proper time. And for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I am telling the truth, I am not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Well, the last time we looked at this letter of First Timothy, we saw that Paul emphasized the importance of prayer in the public gathering. I think he's mainly thinking here in, the, in this section we're looking at, the public gathering of God's people. He said it was of a first importance that we would pray, that prayer would be made for all people. We saw that the reason for saying this that we should pray for all people is because Christ died for all people. Not just some select group, not just some nationality, not just the people we're familiar with, but all people. But Paul did particularly point out that we should pray for kings and all who are in authority. And his reason for that was that God's people might be able to lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness And dignity. Now, we pointed out last time that he was not saying that uh, we should pray for those in authority so that we could have an easy life. That's not what we should come away from uh, uh, verse 2 with. Rather, his desire was that the way of Christ would be advanced and God's people could worship freely. And that can take place more readily in situations that are free from the disturbances of war and persecutions and unrestrained criminal activity. Good government and good laws provide a better setting for Christian living and Christian gathering. But of course Paul also knew that Christ can build his church in any and all situations, even very difficult situations. That's what he was doing in the first century. We ended last time by pointing out that the New Testament writers emphasize doing good even in bad situations. We are to give honor to whom honor is due, pray for those in authority in whatever governmental situation we find ourselves, and seek to be good citizens wherever and whenever possible. Christians should be concerned for the good of their community and the good of their country, which will involve many things. But he, you know, he really emphasized doing good for Christians in whatever situation you're in. Good deeds. You've, it's amazing how often in this, this context that he's dealing with here, if you look up at cross-references, he'll, he'll emphasize do good deeds in whatever situation you're in, that the gospel might be advanced. Um, so... The idea of of just working for the good of those around you and doing good for those around you. But he especially emphasized probably the best thing we can do for anybody is to pray for them. Prayer for those in authority he specifically mentions. So I'd like to take a little more time on the subject of the Christian and government, especially on how to pray for those in authority. I think this is timely, it's amazing, you can't hardly watch anything on the news. It's like there is the rest of the world has just disappeared and we all we have is a few candidates running for office, that's the only thing that makes the news. So anyway, it is, I think, a timely thing. The New Testament instruction regarding our relationship to those in authority were given in a setting that was quite different than what we're in today. Representative government as we know it was not part of the political framework in the days of the apostles, especially a government like ours here in America, a constitutional republic. Uh, it just It's a different setting than what Paul was writing into. We have a a constitutional republic and our founding documents actually recognize God-given human rights. That's a pretty unique thing, God-given human rights. Which means, among other things, that our government is supposed to recognize, I guess I'll emphasize that word, supposed to, supposed to recognize the dignity of everyone's personhood, along with each person's freedom of conscience and, and religious expression. The original recognition by our government of God-given rights like life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness, is, those, those things are a tremendous blessing, which we should not take for granted. Many people have fought and died to make a government like this possible, and most people throughout history have not had governments like this. We need to realize that. Most people, millions of people throughout history have not had a government like we're talking about here uh, that was presented to us in our founding documents. So, that was certainly true of the situation that Paul was writing into. Historically, this letter of Paul was written in the time of Nero, and all you have to do is say his name, and you realize that the situation was quite different back then. But actually, when this letter of 1 Timothy was written, he had not yet unleashed the full fury of government persecution upon the church. In fact, you know from Philippians, though Paul was in jail, he had seen people from Caesar's own household converted becoming Christians. It's a pretty amazing thing. A little earlier than that, Paul had even appealed to the Roman government for protection against his Jewish persecutors. So he was appealing to Rome for protection. But that situation was soon to change when Nero used the young Christian church as a scapegoat for his foolish and failed policies and administration. He was soon blaming all the woes of the empire, especially a massive fire in Rome in 64 AD, upon a despised group of people called Christians. So things were changing right just soon after this letter was written. Most historians think that Paul himself was martyred toward the end of Nero's reign in 66 A.D. Things were even worse after the Jewish revolt against Rome, which began in 66 A.D. Uh, They revolted against Rome, and that led up to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Things were really bad after that. The book of Revelation reflects this situation the situation where there was so much persecution by the government. Soon Caesar was claiming to be Lord and demanding absolute obedience, which, of course, the Christians could not go along with. If you were here three or four years ago when I spoke out of the book of Revelation, you might remember that I made the case that Nero, both both personally and the empire under him and, and later is what I think the, is uh, referred to as the beast in uh, chapter 13 of Revelation. We're told that that beast made war on the saints. So that's uh, certainly a different situation where you have a government that's making war upon the saints. Can't go into that right now, but it does show that governments can be very great persecutors persecutors of God's people nevertheless that doesn't negate what Paul has said in this letter Christians are still supposed to pray for those in authority especially in the light of the fact that God desires all men to be saved even ruthless leaders The question of how to pray for rulers and those in authority has been somewhat of an enigma to me down through the years. I've uh, I've tried to think through it here a little bit more just in relationship to this section of Scripture. So I'd like to share with you some thoughts this morning that I hope will be helpful in understanding how to pray for those in authority. And again, I say this seems fairly relevant for our present situation, present climate right now in America. Uh, I think maybe before I get into that specifically, I'd just like to give you a few basic thoughts related to the, the biblical view of government. That will help us understand how we should pray for those in authority. Just, I think I have ten things here, just very basic uh, view of how the bible presents we should view government first of all since the fall since god has turned that man has turned away from god since the fall human action interaction has been dominated by sin self and satan but god in his common grace has instituted civil government as one way to maintain some degree of civil and social order in society. So, society is not the way God intended it to be, not the way God started it it out because of the sin of man. And so, he's instituted civil governments to maintain some degree of order. Governments are ordained by God for the punishment of evil and the promotion of good. We're told that in Romans 13 restraining evil, promoting good. Now, no government does that perfectly because they're all run by imperfect people, people with sinful hearts. Since laws must be enforced if evil actions are be de- are to be deterred, governments are given the power of the sword, which we're talking about, police force and the military there. If... Uh, If Paul was writing this today, he wouldn't say that uh, the government bears not the sword in vain. He would say the government bears not the gun in vain. That's the idea. The policeman that walks around with that gun isn't doing that just so he can uh, have a gun to wear. It's there in case he needs to use it. And he has the government behind him in the use of that uh, weapon. In general, even inferior governments, even inferior forms of government, are better than no government at all. Societies could not function with rampant and unpunished violence, corruption, personal revenge, murder, and unrestrained sexual morality. God's put governments there to restrain those type of things. One writer said, it's frightening to imagine what would occur in any society in which no one was in charge. Anarchy is disastrous. If citizens had only themselves to protect their lives and property, strife would result almost immediately, and soon any order would collapse. To prevent such a bleak scenario, God established human government to restrain evildoers and lawbreakers. Um, I really think if it wasn't for God's common grace in giving us civil government, society would self-destruct pretty, pretty quickly. Another thing that we see in the way we should understand government is that God is the ultimate source of all authority and he rules over the nations and their governments and he holds them accountable For their sin. God holds nations accountable for their sin. Um, Though Christians are citizens of a much greater heavenly kingdom, they are still called to be subject to earthly authorities. Our attitude should be I want to obey the earthly authorities in all I possibly can without violating my conscience before God. But the, the position we take is one of obedience to authority in whatever situation we find ourselves that's the main attitude we should have obey in everything I possibly can (laughs) nevertheless all authority is limited authority at least all earthly authority is limited authority and therefore absolute obedience is owed only to God Consequently, there are some times when Christians must say, we must obey God rather than man. This is what was necessary in certain situations in, in the book of Acts. That quote is actually Acts 5.29. We must obey God rather than men. One of the ways to determine the exact extent of our Christian obedience to earthly authorities is not what will promote my personal well-being. That's not the way. But rather, what will best advance the cause of Christ and his law of love. That's, that's the criteria. What will best advance the cause of Christ and his law of love. We should pray for and give honor to those in positions of authority in whatever governmental system, system we're under. When possible, we, sh- we should seek to promote good government and good laws, but not try to use government authority to force compliance to any particular religion, including Christianity. Uh, The reason for that is very simple. Forced religion is false religion. Forced religion is false religion. We must recognize that we will sometimes have to suffer under evil governments for the sake of the gospel and for seeking to live in accordance with the law of love. It's just the reality of in a fallen world. Now, those there were 10 things there. I'm sure there could be many more, but as I went through those things, I just thought of an example of what we're talking about uh, in the life of William Tyndale. Because here was one who suffered for doing right Here's one who had to disobey the authorities because of a very bad law, a law that was counter to God's law, and yet he prayed for those in authority. Let me just give you a very brief account of William Tyndale. He believed that God wanted wanted the English people to have the Bible in their own language. So he tried to get official permission to translate the Bible, but there were actually laws against this. To, to print the Bible, to translate and print the Bible in English. So he had to disobey both the Roman Catholic Church, that was the governing uh, the church at the time there in, in uh, England, and the, the government in order to translate and print, print the New Testament. Because he disobeyed, he was an outlaw, and he was hunted down and martyred by the government in october 1536 so if you read some of the letters that he wrote to the king and others in authority they were they were very respectful letters he tried to do this uh in a way that honored the the government and the authorities at that time but they would not have it and he knew that God's people should have God's word it's clear In fact, I was just thinking here how uh, Paul says, uh, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture. Well, you can't do that unless you have the Bible in your own language. So uh, William Tyndale was simply trying to, to follow God and care for people. He cared about the people that they would hear the Word of God. Consequently, He was arrested and uh, martyred. But we're talking about praying for those in authority. That's what he did. In fact, his final words as they tied him to the stake to be burned, they they strangled him and then burned him. But the last thing that he said was a prayer for the king of England. Lord, open the king of England's eyes a prayer for those in authority the last his last words uh and it is interesting to note that 2 years later Henry VIII authorized the printing of an English Bible which was largely it was called the Great Bible but it was largely the work of William Tyndale and then in 1611 is when the King James version was printed the English Bible that's had the most effect probably on the English-speaking people uh, of all time, and that was 80% the work of William Tyndale. So, uh, I don't think the King of England's eyes, Henry VIII, were actually open to his need for salvation in Christ, but he did see that uh, the Bible should be printed in English. So... A good example, I think, of what we're talking about here. Uh, So, that's just kind of a very rough view of the view that we should have of government. But how should we pray then for those in authority? Well, the most obvious thing, of course, would be that we should pray that they would come to know Christ. that they would be convicted of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. That they would see that they are accountable to God for every decision and action that they make, especially in the realm of the government. That they would recognize their own inadequacy and their need to look to God for help. We could also pray that Even as non-Christian leaders, they might have some fear of God. Even if if God doesn't bring them to salvation, that they might have some fear of God or have some God-fearing advisors so that their government might function somewhat as God intended government to function, restraining evil, protecting and supporting good, and punishing lawbreakers. Well, how could that be if they're not converted? Well, I think that can be because of God's common grace and the law written on the heart. In other words, what we would be praying for was would be that those who are in those positions of authority would seek to administer justice <clears throat> honestly and fairly. And I think God can do that because uh, in even an unconverted person's life, at least somewhat, because of the law written on the heart that gives some degree of basic morality, uh to even a non-Christian ruler. So we can pray that God would keep rulers from searing their conscience. I mean that what we're talking about there is the conscience that God's put there. And ask that God would keep these people in power from searing their conscience and suppressing the truth that's written on the heart. I think of this proverb 21.1 where it says, The king's heart... Is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. We need to ask God to turn the hearts of those lost leaders uh, and keep them from searing their hearts. But, of course, in all, in all of this, the main thing should be that we pray for those in authority, that they be presented with the gospel and be brought to real repentance and faith. Even wicked rulers can be brought to repentance by the power of God. They're not so powerful that God can't bring them to repentance. Uh, I think of the Old Testament example of Manasseh. He was a very evil ruler of Judah. And uh, we're told in Second Kings 21 that he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem and did evil in the sight of the Lord. He made his sons pass through the fire, which means he was killing his own children, practiced witchcraft, and used divination. In fact, we're told he did more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. He was worse than the, the heathen uh, leaders in the other nations. But here's the amazing thing. In 2 Chronicles 33, we're told that after he was taken captive to Babylon... He was in distress and entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the Lord, before the God of his fathers. When he had prayed to him, when he prayed to God, God was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. I think that's pretty amazing. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. So God can humble even the mightiest and meanest of rulers. Nebuchadnezzar is another example of that. So we should keep this in mind when we pray for for rulers lost, um, people in leadership. I, I think um, think also here of Isaiah chapter 40. I think it's a good one to keep in mind, and in, in uh, it kind of keeps things in perspective here. This is Isaiah forty twenty three. speaking of God. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither, and the storm carries them away like stubble, just like a little weed. God can get rid of them anytime. So, praying for those in authority. Along the same line, we should not just be thinking of ourselves and our situation when we think of praying for those in authority. We should be praying for leaders of other countries where Christians are persecuted. We should ask that the hearts of these leaders be inclined toward good and just decisions and doing right by those people in his country uh, that the Bible says of whom the the world is not worthy. He's talking about Christians. You know, we should not forget that one half of all the people killed for their uh, Christian faith since the time of Christ were martyred in the 20th century. Of all those other centuries combined, and all the things we've read about the persecutions in the first century and uh, under the Caesars and the Roman Empire. And you add all that up and all the persecution of all the centuries. More than half of all the people killed for their Christian faith. Died in the 20th century. So it's a very real present thing we're talking about. Every Every day there's martyrs around the world. I might just mention this to the young people here because if present trends continue three of the biggest issues that you will have to face in the near future will be the decrease of religious freedom and the increase of the violation of basic human rights and the increase of the persecution of the church it's just going to be the case unless God intervenes I mean I'm I'm amazed at what's happened in the last 20 years. It's just incredible how far uh, things have gone down in just 20 years. Another 20 years, it, who knows? Oh, I'm not. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm trying to prepare you. Uh, and just pray that God would help you to stand. I mean, I. Uh, Compared to what can be, I've had it pretty easy, and all of us have. May God help you to be faithful to the gospel. So that's the one side of the area, just those in authority that don't know the Lord. But what about the situation where the person in authority has some credible profession of faith in Christ? In other words, where there's some hope that this person, either at the local or state or national level, might actually be a Christian. Well, we could pray that they would seek to implement policies that were consistent with biblical principles. That they would stand for the sanctity of life and the biblical view of marriage and family and uphold religious liberty. That they would seek godly counsel in difficult situations. You know, there's a lot in the Proverbs about seeking counsel. And certainly that would be true if you were in a position of uh, authority in a country. Seek godly counsel um, for decisions and that they would be granted real wisdom and knowledge and discernment in their calling. That they would understand how to maintain a proper separation of church and state, knowing how to distinguish that which is Caesar's from that which is God's. Jesus said there is a difference there. Give that which is Caesar's to Caesar and that which is God's to God. That they would be given... Generous and compassionate hearts for the true, truly poor and needy in the land. There's so much in the Bible about that. For the truly poor and needy. And that they would maintain the proper use of the sword. They're, they're given this uh, position by God to use the sword, but it's often misused. So that they would know how to use the sword, the the uh, authority that they've been given properly in that area. We could pray that authorities in all levels of government who profess to know Christ would have the strength to resist temptation and the fear of man. There's so much done in those positions because of the fear of man and for votes and for popularity. And there's so many temptations in those positions of power uh, that they would be able to avoid the love of money and the love of power that is so prevalent in those type of situations. Uh, In all our praying for those in authority, we should remember that there's more going on here than just what meets the eye. That our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, I mean... If we neglect that area, we're really missing a lot of the battle. Behind this visible world of political leaders and social movements and international conflicts, there's an invisible realm that we cannot ignore. There are spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Exactly what Paul meant by these principalities and powers is a difficult subject. But we know that it must include demonic forces of deception and deceit. Invisible powers of wickedness and deceit that are active in promoting ungodly actions in the visible realm. We, we see the visible realm. God says there's a whole other realm involved here. And uh, we cannot neglect that. You know, I looked this subject up on the internet which of course is a dangerous thing <clears throat> and you can come up you can come across all kinds of speculation related to how these principalities and powers are shaping the world today you'll you'll find stuff about territorial spirits and demonic strongholds over cities and demonic hierarchies that must be battled using strategic spiritual warfare i mean all kinds of st- intricate Things like that, uh, which we don't want to get sidetracked on because actually I think they fall into the category of what Paul was talking about in this letter, Warren Timothy, about refuse foolish and ignorant speculation. So much of that is just speculation. But on the other hand, we must not forget as Christians that there is more going on than just people thinking and acting wrongly. There is an invisible demonic realm that has a real effect on this world and the places of power and influence. Now, that's not hard to believe when you look at a group like ISIS. I mean, that's so obviously demonic, some of the things that are done there. But I believe these demonic forces are active in a much deeper level. Everywhere there are lies and deception because Satan's the father of lies. Paul brings this out in relationship to false teaching later on in this letter. He says that false doctrines are not just some man-made thing. It's not just something somebody came up with. Mm-hmm. They're brought about by deceitful spirits, and he calls them doctrines of demons. Yeah. So what, what are our weapons in, in this spiritual warfare? For? Two, two main things, truth and prayer. Truth and prayer. If you're going to fight in this realm... You're going to need truth, and you're going to need to pray. So my reason for bringing up this subject of principalities and powers is just to emphasize this. This is the amazing thing, that our prayers can actually affect both the visible and invisible realm. We can pray that God might work in the hearts of those in authority, And we can also pray that God would restrain spiritual forces of wickedness that would seek to pull earthly leaders into further ungodliness. In fact, not only can we, this is what God's told us to do. There are things going on in the spiritual realm that we're often unaware of and may not understand very well. But God can use our prayers to change lives and shape the course of history. E.M. Bounds said, God shapes the world by prayer. God shapes the world by prayer. Andrew Murray said, God rules the world by the prayers of his saints. If you think about it, it's, it's pretty staggering to realize that our times of prayer... Can change things eternally. So I want to close with a quote from S.D. Gordon. He said, The greatest thing anyone can do for God and man is to pray. It's not the only thing, but it is the chief thing. The great people of the earth are the people who pray. I do not mean those who talk about prayer nor those who say they believe in prayer, nor yet those who can explain about prayer, but I mean those who take the time to pray. So Paul says as in this section, he says, Therefore I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. He's just saying this is the way, if you're going to really have an effect on this world, this is the way to do it. I want the men to pray. It's absolutely essential. So let me just repeat what I closed with last time. And that is that we are to be praying for the advancement of the gospel, for people to be saved, for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven, we're to do this because this is what pleases. God's called us to this, and it pleases Him. See what He says here in verse 3. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. This is good and acceptable for God's people to pray. He desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So. In closing then, may God teach us how to pray the way Paul's talking about here. For those in authority and for all men in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. I'm going to read two verses and be done. These are both from the Psalms. And I didn't know exactly where to fit them in, but they're part of the picture, and it's good to remember in these times we're in right now the first is psalm one eighteen eight where the psalmist says, "It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes uh you You look at some of these crowds at these Political rallies, and you would think that these people are going to really make the big difference in the world. They're not. The Lord makes the difference. And then 146, Psalm 146, verse 3. Do not trust in princes, in mortal man, in whom there is no salvation. There's no real ultimate help in these people that seem to have so much power. We we need to pray for them. They need God just as much as anyone else. And uh, God's told us to pray for those in authority. Well, let's pray here in closing. Our Father, our confidence, our trust, our reliance is in you. We want to learn how to pray for all men, especially those in authority. But we know that our true trust, our true source of help and strength and salvation is in you. Help us to keep the proper perspective. Thank you that we can rest in the in times when things seem certainly to be going in the wrong direction. We can trust You, your purposes will be accomplished. And we pray that you use us for your for your glory in this day and age that you've put us in. In Jesus' name, amen.